Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Perfect. So thank you all again for joining us. Hopefully you all had a great holiday last week, whether it was Passover or whether it was Easter um, or whether you're preparing for upcoming Ramadan. So hopefully everyone is staying safe um, and enjoying the spring weather when we get the sun out. So this morning I'm going to go over, of course, as we always do, the numbers that kind of keep us grounded in understanding we're still in the pandemic. Though those numbers will discuss where we're at with the vaccine rate here in the state of Maryland. And then we're going to spend just a few moments talking about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine before we turn it over to our guests. And the reason for it is uh, it's been in the news quite some time uh, over the last two weeks. And so I want to be able to give peace of mind to individuals if they're uh, considering to get the vaccinations and the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that is readily available to them. As always, listeners, you all, you all, you are our front line, right? Being able to promote health and prevent disease, specifically for COVID-19, means you are the frontline staff. I, as a physician, and my other colleagues and my nursing colleagues, we are your last line of defense. So take this information and disseminate it to your friends and family so they can stay safe. So very excited to catch you up with where what has been going on in the world of COVID-19. In regards to cases around the world, we are at 134,217,444 cases globally, with COVID-19-related deaths at 2,907,952, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the U.S., we have 31,688,881 cases with deaths at 573,396, giving us a U.S. mortality rate at 1.8%. And finally, here in the state of Maryland, we have 421,823 cases with deaths at 8,224, giving us a mortality rate related to COVID-19 here in the state of Maryland at 1.9%. In regards to the vaccines at the state of Maryland, we are fully vaccinated at 20.8% of our Maryland population. That's amazing, continues to go higher. About two weeks ago, I think we were talking about 12 to 14%. So kudos to the uh, public health uh, officials of the state of Maryland, making sure we can get the vaccine and the shots into our Marylander arms. Now let's talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Remember, it's one of the three vaccines that are FDA approved for emergency use for vaccination. In that regard, it's another tool to help us ending the pandemic. So that is exciting. So in regards to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a few things I want to bring up in order to understand how it works and its safety, right? That's going to be important because you want to make sure that the benefit of the vaccine far outweighs any risks of it. So first, one thing that separates Johnson & Johnson from Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine is it's a one-shot dose, right? That's great. Uh, I got the Pfizer. I remember when I went and got the first one, then I had to set up my follow-up uh, uh, visit. It's reasonable. You know, it's part of healthcare. Sometimes you need a follow-up. 
but Johnson & Johnson doesn't have that and doesn't need it with the way they evaluated and researched this vaccine. So for those of you with busy lives, this probably may be a little bit more accommodating in order to say, all right, I got my one shot and I should be good after a few weeks getting those antibodies up and ready to keep me safe from COVID-19. Now, all the vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, the way they were evaluated, meaning what endpoint did we say, did we want to target to say this vaccine works? And all the vaccine's endpoints were centered around preventing severe COVID-19. Severe COVID-19, meaning it's usually going to result in hospitalizations and potentially death. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine proved to be effective at preventing severe COVID-19. That's remarkable, right? That's exactly what Moderna and Pfizer also showed. And Johnson & Johnson showed that same efficacy ranging close to mid-80 percentile of doing that, and in certain age groups as high as 90 percent, in other age groups as low as in the 70 70th percentile, but still very good at being effective. So Johnson & Johnson, with that data, when submitted to the FDA for emergency approval, they're like, you got our attention. But tell us about side effects. And so the Johnson & Johnson side effects were minimal, right, incredibly low. And I say this because they were on par with the frequency of Moderna and Pfizer and really on par with traditional just kind of medical interventions. So the safety profile got a lot of people reassured. Now, and over the last two weeks, we heard some headline news, and appropriately so, where vaccine sites, such as the one in Colorado, they ended up shutting it down for a few hours because of adverse events related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, we say this because to the listeners, Whenever we hear these events, we got to understand, well, what was happening in order to get our attention? Now, Johnson & Johnson did review the data, as well as the FDA and others, and they found that the, the serious adverse events were incredibly low, 0.8% of the individuals who received it, which was on par with what they were finding in the studies. Now, I see this because sometimes probability, sometimes bad luck aligns, and that's potentially what they may have seen at the store when they were giving these vaccines. But rest assured that close to 200,000 people in the world have gotten the vaccine from Johnson & Johnson, both from research standpoints, in addition to real-world receival of the vaccine, and the side effects continue to remain well under 1%, incredibly, incredibly low. Now, a few other things. How does it work? Right, this one works a little bit differently than Moderna and Pfizer. Remember, Moderna and Pfizer we get injected with a blueprint to see uh, the, the genetic blueprint to make more of the protein. Johnson & Johnson actually steals a common cold virus, right? Won't cause us any harm, I promise you. And that virus just transports the protein into our bodies. And that transportation is called a viral vector. Vector meaning the transportation, viral implying it's from a virus bringing in this protein. This technology, I want to say, though, it is not new. Right? The genetic coding for Pfizer and Moderna, that's relatively new. Even though it's been researched for about two decades, it's the first time we're releasing it into the real world outside of the laboratory or research. Johnson & Johnson's technology has been used in the real world many times, actually for different things like genetic therapy, where children may be born without certain genes, we can give them back to them using this technology, the viral vector. So technology not necessarily new, 
Side effects, very low. And is it effective? Yes. The other thing that really needs to be mentioned about Johnson & Johnson, which I praise the study on, remember when they submitted to the FDA, they researched close to 50,000 people. And these were 50,000 diverse human beings, meaning close to half of them were Hispanic Latino, more than 25% of them were African Americans, or black, right, because a good portion of them actually were Africans, they were in South Africa. So this is the most well-researched vaccine from a diversity standpoint. That's great, right? So it's a vaccine with great real-world outcomes and has uh, understanding that it's going to help the real-world population. So all of that gives me the confidence that this is a great tool to have to ending the pandemic. You didn't lose me. Now just making sure I'm a little quieter. So with all that information about Johnson & Johnson, if you still have more questions about the vaccine, please make sure you email Kimberly and I. We're happy to tackle that in real time. And I say this because just two days ago, I had a colleague reach out to me for peace of mind. He's like, I'm scheduled to get it on Friday. Talk to me, doctor. Is it good to get? And I, pro I said I would happily get it. I sent my parents to get it if, it was up to, if they were given that opportunity. So I promise you, this is a great tool to have to help end the pandemic. So we talked about Johnson & Johnson. We talked about the vaccines. Now let's talk to someone who can tell us how to get these shots in arms here in the state of Maryland. So my colleague, Kimberly, I'm going to turn it over to you to continue uh, with, our today's, with today's guest. Over to you, my friend. Thank you, Dr. G. And so, yes, today I am thrilled to introduce today's guest speaker, Keith Colston, the Director of Ethnic Commission within the Governor's Office of Community Initiatives. So welcome, Mr. Colston, and thank you so much for joining us today. And remember to press star six to unmute your line. Joanna Skenehey, good morning to everyone, and thank you for allowing me to be here and representing the Governor's Office Community Initiatives. Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, so before we get into the discussion, um, you have an interesting background. Would you uh, mind sharing a little bit about yourself and, and the work that you do within the uh, Governor's Office of Community Initiatives? Sure, not a problem at all. Uh, uh, with the Governor's Office Community Initiatives, uh, my a specific commission that I work with is the Maryland Commission on Indian Affairs. I happen to be Tuscarora and Lumbee, which are two tribes from the North Carolina area, uh, the Lumbee tribe being the ninth largest tribe uh, east uh, in the country, and then, of course, the largest tribe east of the Mississippi. And then with the Tuscaroras, they are uh, part of the North Carolina uh, group of natives uh, that are indigenous to the state, and then, of course, many of them uh, during the 1700s moved up to New York and were adopted by the Haudenosaunee people, which uh, made them now, which is known as the Six Nations. Uh, so just a little bit of information there, uh, but that is unique because I'm not indigenous to the state of Maryland, whereas we do have uh, indigenous populations and tribal communities uh, that are uh, represented by their tribal leaderships, tribal councils, and then, of course, uh, supported uh, by the Maryland Commission on Indian Affairs. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. This time, Wikipedia was um, correct <laughs> when I did some research, so thank you. So, um, you know, we've been hosting these calls since uh, March of last year, 2020, with the goal of keeping our community safe and healthy by sharing up-to-date information. And, you know, the vaccines have certainly been the headlines for the last few months, and now that they're becoming 
more available, people have a lot of questions you know, regarding eligibility, where to go, what to expect, et cetera, et cetera. So today we hope to tackle many of these questions and hopefully put our listeners at ease. So to begin, what has been the state's rollout plan and how was it decided? Well, with the rollout plan, uh, the goal was always to establish uh, an infrastructure that allowed us to distribute the vaccines once they were available uh, to uh, the public uh, based on seven different priority groups based on the relative risk uh, of the exposure or developing serious illnesses or underlying health conditions that it's been referred to. Uh, we felt that uh, that the health departments in each of our counties uh, were the ideal choices to reach to their constituents, uh, the first responders, the hospitals, uh, and you know those uh, groups that they oversaw or oversee uh, in the programs that they were working with, uh, especially concerning the most vulnerable, like our elderly. So logistically, they were the best choices. Uh, currently, right now, we are in uh, what we refer to as Phase 2B, uh, and I'm sure that we can get a little bit more into those specifics. But that is the, the most important thing that we could do is to uh, develop and create, once again, an infrastructure that once we were uh, receiving uh, the supply of the vaccines from the federal government, uh, that we were able to uh, get those out uh, to all of our partners and individuals we work with uh, to get shots in the arm. One of the other things, uh, you know, is by working with the federal government, uh, with the CDC, uh, and with all of our partners, uh, we're continuously able to do this, and it just gets better. So you did mention um, Phase 2B. So uh, what individuals fall under that group? So uh, when we check out the websites and providing the information, uh, like what I'm doing here, uh, you know, providing the information specific to individuals uh, that fit those criteria. And right now, Marylanders ages 16 uh, and up with underlying medical conditions uh, that increase their risk uh, for severe situations dealing with COVID-19, they're involved in that, as well as uh, those that were in phase one and two, which, uh, which are prioritized because of them being in that particular phase in action of the, of the rollout plan. And, um, you know, I heard that the, the general population would be able to register um, as early as April 19th. Is that accurate? Uh, April 19th, uh, so we, the general public, uh, once that we have that supply of, of the vaccine, uh, again, coming from the federal government, uh, that's when we'll probably be looking at where, you know, each and every Marylander. But again, as you know, restating that, we are currently in phase 2B, and we're really having to look at see how, these, how this continues to, to uh, play out, again, with the amount of supply that we receive, uh, and with the vaccination sites that we continuously create and are in place, and those who, of course, who want the, the vaccine itself. Uh, this is just going to increase our numbers and allow that opportunity where each and every Marylander, once we get to that point, will be able to receive the vaccination, or the vaccine, rather. Is there um, any sense of when the vaccine might be available? Um, for the general public, I, I just want to make it clear to our audience that the April date is just for registration, um, but is there any idea to when they might be actually be able to schedule something to be vaccinated? 
Well, we can definitely look at the registration process uh, where you know, we encourage individuals to either uh, utilize the Internet or by calling in and registering uh, for, vac for vaccination. Uh, that's one of the best ways that uh, we can pretty much guarantee an individual uh, once they have received their appointment uh, and getting vaccinated. Uh, so we are, again, always basing it off the supply of vaccination or supply of vaccines. Uh, in order to, you know, get shots in each and every Marylanders arm uh, as quickly as possible. Great. Thank you. So um, Dr. G mentioned uh, during his report that Maryland was at 20.8% um, vaccinated. Do you have the numbers as far as the percentage of Baltimore City residents in Baltimore County? Uh, actually, we do. Uh, when, when we're looking at the percentages, looking at first dose, second dose, and then a single dose. Uh, and this is where, you know, with the Maryland Department of Health, they do an incredible job uh, with the collection of data uh, and getting that data out as quickly as possible. So, again, kudos to them uh, in working and doing so. When we look at Baltimore City, uh, the first dose of uh, individuals vaccinated is about 27.332%. Um, Forgive me for being very specific, but I just want to make sure I try to give as, as accurate data, data as possible. And then we're looking at the second dose. Uh, that comes around to 15.679%, and then the single dose, 1.271%. Uh, now, that's Baltimore City. We look at Baltimore County. Uh, Baltimore County is looking at a 33.55% first dose vaccination, and then the second dose uh, being received at about 20. Uh, 0.077%. If we're looking at just a single dose, uh, we're looking at 1.637%. So it gives you uh, somewhat of an idea of those percentages in, in reference to your question. Thank you, Mr. Colston. And I, I chose those two areas just based on our audience, but um, I know there are folks from other areas and actually other states. So what site are you on in case they wanted to look up their information local to their area? We Definitely. Thank you for asking that question. You know, there's a, a variety of, of, of places that people can get this information. We're always encouraging people to use the website coronavirus.maryland.gov. Uh, and I'll say that one more time, coronavirus.maryland.gov. And Maryland is spelled out, of course. And that, on that website, there's, there's so much information that people can look at that is very specific to the doses administered, doses distributed, uh, a, a lot of the great information um, that Dr. G presented just moments ago. And then, of course, uh, the testing sites, finding a vaccine, vaccine information, uh, looking at contract tracing data, uh, nursing home data, so, again, it's just a great tool to use, and then uh, by doing so, uh, it will uh, move you and encourage you to visit other sites as well pertaining to the information that you're seeking. Thank you for that, and I'll, I'll certainly share that website um, in my follow-up as well. So I'm not, uh, I won't get into the specific populations, but, you know, we have heard that there's a lot of um, inequity among different populations. Why, what are your thoughts on why some populations have greater access or higher percentage of people that are getting vaccinated than others? Well, if, if there was an answer, I would say that there wasn't one single answer. I would believe uh, and say that based on my uh, opportunity to be on several different phone calls with several different entities in the state working with the same goal, 
of ridding ourselves of COVID-19. You know, we look at the factors, uh, you know, they could be, but yet not limited to, you know, the inter- internet ex- uh, accessibility, uh, transportation, uh, hard to reach areas, uh, trust issues historically and today. Uh, yet I would say that by the governor's office community initiatives working with entities such as uh, the Maryland Emergency Management Agency uh, with Director Strickland, uh, the National Guard, uh, and specifically the Equity Task Force with Brigadier uh, General Burkhead, well, looking and working uh, just recently but continuously uh, with the faith-based leaders, uh, and that's being led up by uh, Director Jennifer Gray and uh, Lieutenant Governor Rutherford, uh, along with the many other things that he, he's involved in. Of course, with the ethnic commissions, um, as serving as director, but working with incredible uh, directors uh, that that are speci- specifically assigned um, and work directly with those ethnic commissions, and then we're looking at you know MDH uh, Maryland Department of Health, uh, the uh, the community stakeholders advisory group, which uh, on mass vaccinations, which is head up by Dr. Mark Martin. So these are just incredible individuals, uh, names that are continuously. Uh, looked at and, 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 and spoken with, and, and, and then uh, just all of us working together uh, to, again, uh, provide more of an equity situation or the equity that should be in place. Uh, so we're all working for equity during COVID-19 and the vaccination of all Marylanders. Great. Thank you, Mr. Colson. Um, so now that many groups are available for the vaccine, um, where can they go? What types of places, and, and how do they register? Uh, you know, are they automatically registered within their county or residence or state, or do, are you familiar with the process of how they, they go about that? Sure. Uh, there is a registration process, uh, and, and that's really probably one of the best ways that individuals can guarantee uh, a vaccination. Uh, you know, going, again, utilizing the websites uh, that that are available uh, and the information that they have. Uh, first and foremost, you know, finding a vaccination site, which if, you know, you utilize the coronavirus.maryland.gov uh, website, um, you're going to, of course, be able to go to and find a vaccination site where when you put in your address, your zip code, uh, or a place name, uh, then it provides you with a vaccination site itself. Uh, by registering, uh, you would then be, of course, wait for uh, them uh, the individuals or, or the or MDH, the website itself and those in charge to uh, send you and contact you in reference to appointment. And they'll contact you uh, in reference to the way that you choose, uh, whether it be by phone, by Internet, uh, text. And then once you receive uh, your appointment, uh, you definitely want to make sure that uh, at all possible to make that appointment uh, and getting there in reference to vaccination. We've got about 12 uh, mass vaccination sites uh, looking at uh, a, a, a 13th coming into play by next week. Uh, and so, again, the governor's been making sure, along with various other individuals that I mentioned just pre- just moments ago, uh, to get individuals who, of course, want uh, the vaccine uh, to make it uh, available to them. But the, pre-regist- uh, the pre-registration and then leading to an actual appointment is your best bet in reference to guarantee that because uh, even though that people uh, are able uh, at, uh, at particular, particular sites are able to show up, uh, it, you know, if, as long as the supply is there, uh, that's, you know, when, you know, someone will be able to get vaccinated. Uh, the problem is, is that, again, the, the supply chain or the supply 
supplies that we get in reference to uh, the federal government and making sure that we can, again, have the vaccine there uh, for the people that are there. And um, so I understand that I think there's a, a call center within the MDH because, you know, you know a lot of um, folks listening or older adults um, with maybe no access or anyone without maybe access to a computer to register online. Um, so is a call center, is there other options that they can register if they don't have De access to computer? Definitely. I'm glad, to, again, uh, love the questions that you have here today, this morning. Uh, yes, you can definitely call 1-855-MD-GOVAX. Uh, uh, and uh, let me, I'll read, out the, read that out again. 1-855-MD-GOVAX. And for our listeners that, that are on the call here that, that will receive this information, it's 1-855-634-688. Again, that's one 634 Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. No um, problem. And along that topic, um, how are residents of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities getting vaccinated? Well, that's pretty much... Uh, in reference to following a, somewhat the same process, making sure that there's a pre-registration. They, you know, they're in phase uh, in the phase one and two of that group, uh, 65 and older. Uh, and the great thing about that is having uh, about 70, 78.5% uh, of our 65 and older uh, age group that uh, have been vaccinated. And so, you know, we want that to continuously take place, and that's why getting this information out in reference to how to register, how to, uh, again, get those uh, appointments in place, and, and having our, uh, our, that age group, which uh, are elderly, and are in their health conditions, making sure that they have that opportunity. Uh, so they're still in the priority of getting vaccinated. And so once again, that pre-registration and then uh, appointment is so vital for them to, to follow through with. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we were, you were talking about supply, and right now, you know, there's more demand than supply, but I would imagine at some point there would be more supply than demand. What do you think the messaging could be to encourage Maryland to get vaccinated once the, the supply is fruitful? Well, the, definitely the goal is to get everyone vaccinated who wants to, uh, to continue to wear a mask. Uh, and I, I, per, I personally always say correctly, you know, you can, you can have a mask, but, you know, wear it correctly. So very important, uh, you know, to continue the distancing, social distancing, and, uh, and get vaccinated uh, to, uh, to get uh, vaccinated, to get to a point where we, uh, there's more supply than there are people, uh, and that the need of a vaccine uh, will lessen. And then uh, a return to normalcy and allowing uh, our businesses to work at 100% capacity. You know, so the goal, once again, uh, is to get everyone vaccinated, uh, to, to continuously spread that message to everyone, constantly provide the, the information from a factual standpoint, you know, based on the data that is, that is accumulated daily, and, and also sharing the information of where people can get vaccinated at. And so they, we're going to continue to do that, uh, working with our partners, uh, working with our health providers, and probably uh, one of the things that I would add is, is just the appreciation 
uh, that we want to express to everyone that has been working and doing so. And so when we think about, you know, our vaccinators, our nurses, you know, the National Guard, our clinical partners, uh, all of our partners, uh, the hospitals, the volunteers that are continuously needed and, and that show up, and uh, all of our state agencies working hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, th this is how we're going to, again, get back to a sense of normalcy. And that's, uh, that's a great segue into my next question. Um, you know, has the governor discussed at what percentage of vaccinations would Maryland need to reach before there would be consideration to open, say, schools full-time for us to stop wearing masks and social distancing? I, I mean, I... You know, you see all these other states, I think the last I checked was maybe 15, but it may have changed, that they've already, you know, um, uh, changed those. And I the, personally have applauded, uh, you know, the governor for, um, you know, protecting us and, and keeping our numbers low in the state of Maryland. But, um, you know, what is his goal or, or what is the department's goal of the numbers to reach before we can see some better sense of, of normalcy? Well, I would I would definitely go back to the the goal of just getting everyone vaccinated uh, again who wants that to continue to provide them that info. I can't in, uh, unfortunately intelligently answer that question. I believe that's better left up to the governor during his press conferences uh, that he has, and that we encourage everyone to view uh, if they are given the opportunity or or to to watch you know uh, at a later time uh, since they are posted to his website and, and other places as well. Uh, so I I'm, I'm can't, can't provide you with that specific answer, but I would encourage you to continuously uh, follow uh, his press conferences and the information he provides in, in, that, in reference to your question specifically. Understood, and thank you. And as Dr. G always says, and I probably don't have his wording correctly, but, you know, the best way to not, you know, the best way to treat COVID is not to get COVID, and for that is to get vaccinated. So um, we hope that everyone will do so. Um, you know, once, um, you know, folks have, you know, pre-registered for the vaccines, will they know in advance which sites, like if they have a preference over Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or whatever else that may come up, will they be able to know what vaccines are available and to choose yeah. what sites? Yes, they will. I, I think that's a short answer I can provide is yes. Uh, once that you are you have registered, pre-registered and registered, and once that you receive that information back, that, that information will be provided to you. Uh, the, the process has been um, uh, fairly, fairly uh, um, easy to work with. Uh, we've gotten a lot of great comments back, uh, whether it was the testing sites, the, the registration, or the, or the vaccination. And, and we're always looking to you know, continuously make that more efficient. So this is why we have the advisory groups and, and the other entities that we continuously work with, if not on a daily basis and every other day, uh, gathering that information and seeing where we can, again, create and make things more efficient uh, and, and getting shots in the arm and, and as you said, uh, getting uh, individuals vaccinated and returning to a sense of normalcy. Great. Thank you so much. And um, I just wanted to, you know, I have one additional question, and I, I just wanted to thank you so much for this wonderful information and uh, appreciate you taking the time to share this information with our community. We've had so many questions about this, and I just appreciate you joining us today. And uh, we do have a lot more questions coming in. Some may be more um, generalized that Dr. G might be more responsive to, but also maybe for you as well. 
Um, but this last question that I had for you is, can employers require their staff to be vaccinated? So, so currently with, the, with, with state government, we, we are not required. Uh, but I would also encourage anyone, everyone, depending upon, because that's such a, such a broad question in reference to you know, employers and, and, and not being specific to any uh, field or area or, or you know, parts of society. But I would always encourage people to you know, uh, inquire uh, concerning that uh, directly with whatever agency or, or job that they're working with. Uh, uh, so that would be my best answer to that is always for them to inquire with that uh, to the specific business or employer uh, that they are trying to gain employment with. Great. Thank Again, thank you so much, Mr. Colson. I really appreciate you joining us today. I know Dr. G has been um, seeing COVID patients, um, and I, I know I don't know what part you were able to join us, Dr. G. But um, thank you for. Did you have any before we move on to the community questions? Uh, did you have anything that you wanted to say, or no, nothing from? Can you hear me, Kimberly? Yes. No, nothing from my end. And I, I and again, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, uh, big thank you. Uh, you've answered so many questions that I know comes up frequently from our community callers and listeners. So a huge thank from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. G. And so, like I said, um, some of these questions um, may be appropriate for you, maybe for Dr. G. So if you still have some time, if you wouldn't mind still staying on the line um, and kind of bearing with us as we kind of go through the community questions. Does that work for you? Sure. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, where do we start? Um, so, Dr. G, if a person has had COVID-19, is there a reason to wait a certain time period before taking the vaccine, or is there a reason not to take it at all? So, great question, Kimberly. And so, in the past, I remember one of our special guests who came on, uh, Imam Hassan, um, who was one of our callers about two weeks ago, oh, three or four weeks ago. And he called uh, to discuss his story of surviving COVID. And I remember he called me while at a nursing home, right? He just arrived there after leaving Hopkins Hospital, and he was in, they said, hey, would you like to get the COVID-19 vaccine? And he goes, well, let me talk to Dr. G. So he called me. He goes, Dr. G, I thought we had to wait 90 days. And I relayed to him. Actually, the reason that we opt, we would save those messages in the beginning was usually just because of the inability to have enough vaccines for the demand. So we felt comfortable saying, if you've had recently COVID-19, you may have some protective antibodies for a period of time. And so you may be able to delay getting the vaccine and allowing it to get into other people's arms in the meantime. But now that recommendation, I would say if you have access if you're able to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. I would not get it during active COVID-19, but definitely after it's resolved and you've had that conversation with your healthcare professional, there isn't a time constraint if you get the blessings from your healthcare professional to receive it. So that's what I would say. So for the listeners, make sure you've talked to your healthcare professional to get their blessing. So he or she can say, yes, I think it's safe to get, but there is not a time constraint now knowing we'll have more supplies to meet the demand of our population. Thank you, Dr. G. Um, and the next question, a, a really interesting one, is the absence of side effects 
from getting a vaccination indicate any less effectiveness? Great question. So the answer is no. And I say this because our bodies are all different. And how we mount our immune response is no different than our colleagues who go to the gym, and some of them get really sweaty with a certain activity, and others don't break a sweat with the same activity. Right? Our bodies are different and physiologically we respond differently to certain interventions. So those who mount a side effect, kudos, right? You can feel that immune system working. And those who don't, I promise you, it does not mean your immune system did not work. Just meant your body is built in a manner where you didn't get the side effects. So from my standpoint, whether you get them or not, if you get them, clearly your, your body's rubbing up. But if you don't get it, you are just fine, I promise. Thank you, Dr. G. Um, I have a few more questions. I just wanted to remind everyone, um, if you do have any questions for Mr. Colston, please email them to um, the mgg at jhmi.edu. I also wanted to mention we do have a few questions regarding um, congregations opening safely. And as we've mentioned before, uh, Dr. G and I do hold um, sessions to kind of um, you know guide you through you know whether it's uh, hand hide in practicing safe practices and reopening your sanctuary. So um, we will get back to you um, separately on that. So I just wanted to mention that. But if you are interested in scheduling a session, feel free to, um, again, reach out to the mgg at jhmi.edu, and we'd be happy to speak with you. Um, so the next part, um, and I'm guessing this has to do um, particularly back then when we talked about um, COVID spreading through surfaces. But if you were to drop pills, your medications on the floor, um, is it safe to take them or discard them, I guess, in fear of uh, contamination, and particularly with COVID? So the, the question, Kimberly, and tell me if I'm misunderstood, if you drop your medications on the floor, is it safe to take them again? Is that correct? Take them. Yes. And there might be some other issues along with that yeah. as well. So my heart goes out to anyone. I've had the drops of my own medications. So a lot of it also just depends on the floor that you drop it on as well. So uh, the, the floor and the time. So if you drop and pick right up on a floor that you just cleaned, I probably would say it's perfectly fine, maybe dust it off. But if you say drop it in mud, that's kind of an extreme example, probably I would not uh, endorse. So um, great question to the listener. What I would say is you've got to know the floor and you've got to know how long you've it's been on the floor. If you're in the hospital and you dropped it, I wouldn't touch it. Let it be and pick something, out, uh, something else up. Let your healthcare professional know who prescribes them that you drop the medications on the floor and that you will likely run out sooner than the prescribed time. But from my standpoint, answering this question involves knowing the floor that it fell on and the time it's spent on that floor, right? The longer the time, more likely the bacteria has to get on it and so forth. So, but I will say, for, to take this back to COVID, we, while a year ago, Kimberly and I, when this, when this uh, hour, were like, oh, my gosh, be cautious of, the, of your surfaces, clean them and thoroughly, we have found that COVID-19 spreading through surface is incredibly rare, very rare, much more rare than its predecessors, SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV. So getting COVID-19 through surface, I would say that's, that's probably not a concern. So... That's that's great question by the community, by the way. I love that. It's a very practical question for day-to-day. -day. Back to you, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G. So, um, you know, uh, our listeners are still 
you know, asking for your recommendations on being around someone who has not received their COVID vaccine. So if if you if the person themselves say I've gotten my vaccine, but I want to be around you who another person who is not vaccinated, um, can they be in or outdoor gathering? Can they stay overnight? Um, do you still have to wear face masks? Um, can you uh, reassure the community of the best way to handle this situation? No, great question. So if someone who is not in your immediate circle of living quarters, right? So this isn't a child who's been with you for the last year living with you, right? Someone that, again, is not part of your immediate household, however that household should be defined. Being with them who are not vaccinated, you should still take the proper precautions, the, meaning no change from the public health requests that we've been saying. When being with someone who has not had the vaccine, two, two things are concerning. One is if we let down our guards with the public health interventions. One is they may still be able to give you COVID-19, right? Because remember, the vaccines prevent severe disease, not necessarily a mild case of it. And if you get even a mild case, that means you go back and quarantine. You have the vaccines keeping you from being more ill, but it's not stopping you from getting that mild case. And if you have a mild case, you might also be susceptible to spreading it. So the other part, too, is you don't know if maybe if you casually picked it up and could spread it to them, right? The, the, that part, while good data is coming out, supporting that potentially these vaccines may also stop the transmission, to me, it still hasn't crossed the threshold to feel confident to say that to others. Remember, vaccines' jobs aren't just prove that they can stop transmission. Their job is to prove that they can prevent disease. So to our listeners, the simplest way I'll put it is, if you're going to be engaging with someone who's not been vaccinated and they're not part of your household, I would still approach them with the same public health cautions that you've done in the past. So that might mean getting COVID tests. They get COVID tests before seeing you, right? A variety of things, but it's all the same recommendations that we've been emphasizing uh, during this pandemic. So just one person being vaccinated, to me, does not give us a security to let our guards down, right? And that's what the CDC is also emphasized. You can have a vaccine bubble with them, put your guard down, be humans again. So that's how we would approach it, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G. Um, and for the remaining questions, um, uh, we will uh, get back to you by email or phone call. So I just want to thank you, for uh, everyone, for submitting your thoughtful questions. We always appreciate that. And again, um, I wanted to thank uh, Mr. Colston for joining us. It looks like there's no further questions. So again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure um, speaking with you. Same here. And again, if there's anything that we, the Governor's Office Community Initiatives, myself or any of our staff uh, can assist you with, please do not hesitate. And uh, definitely, uh, Dr. G, thank you for all the information you provided. Uh, I'm listening uh, uh, to each and every word, and I'll be taking this back with me to the office as well. Excellent. Thank you guys so much, and uh, thank you so much. And today, I don't know if Kimberly, I'll really let you guys know, I had a break away to go see some COVID-19 patients in the intensive care unit. So, Thank you guys all for everything you've done. But Kimberly, over to you, my friend, to bring this hour to a close. Thank you, Dr. G, and, and thank you for, for keeping our patients well. So, Before I turn the call over to Reverend Teague, uh, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call 
scheduled for Friday, April the 16th at 11 a.m. for a discussion on children and COVID-19. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Hi, this is Paula. Kimberly, you can hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Great. Um, so thank you again for this call and for the really valuable information and connections that we're making to the governor's office. And I just always appreciate this very much. Um, the blessing today is really comes out of, a, I think, a renewed sense of uh, spring of our just past um, religious observances, kind of an awareness of new life and hope around us. And I thought it would be um, uh, appropriate to share a blessing from John O'Donohue. And the name of the blessing is A Blessing for Beauty. Um, and there I'm reading uh, portions of that blessing today. So A Blessing for Beauty. May the beauty of your life become more visible to you, that you may glimpse your wild divinity. May the wonders of the earth call you forth from all your small secret prisons and set your feet free in the pastures of possibilities. May the angel of memory surprise you in bleak times with new gifts from the harvest of your vanished days. May you allow no hand to quench the candle of hope in your heart. May you discover a new generosity toward yourself and encourage yourself to engage your life at a great, as a great adventure. May the outside voices of fear and despair find no echo in you. May the shelter and nourishment of all the good you have done, the love you have shown, the suffering you have carried, awaken around you to bless your life a thousand times. May you find enough stillness and silence to savor the kiss of God on your soul and delight in the eternity that shapes you, that holds you and calls you. May you know that despite confusion, anxiety, and emptiness, your name is written in the heart of love. And may you come to see your life as a quiet sacrament of service, where doubt gives way to the grace of wonder, where crippled hope can find wings, and torment enter at last into serenity. May divine beauty bless you. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Teague, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Have a great evening, great afternoon, and a great weekend. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.